Well, good morning, Chapel family. We are beginning a new series. Father God, we thank you for wonderful things like heat. We thank you that we are such spoiled folks. Uh, while so many have to suffer the extremes of heat and cold, uh, we've got air conditioning and, and uh, we get upset when it's, uh, when the, the heater isn't working and failing to give thanks for the fact that we have heat. Lord, thank you for that gift. Truly, it is a blessing. But it makes us think all the more of our brother and sister, Tom and Lisa, for their love for you that has compelled them to go and take the gospel to those who have not heard. To go to a land where one of the few things colder than the temperature outside is the hearts of the folks. Uh, in terms of their response to the good news of Christ. It is a hard and a difficult place. And I pray this morning as they meet with these ladies, Father, that Your Word would, uh, would penetrate cold, hard, frozen ground. And, and uh, Lord, that You would warm it up and, and uh, cause the seed to take root and bear a, bear a, a plant and, and fruit. Father, how we long to see when we gather around the throne of grace that there would be a large harvest of Mongolians there. Lord, it's Your heart as well. You say that You promise that there will be people from every tongue and tribe and nation there. And there are believers in Mongolia, just a handful of them, not many. Lord, we pray that uh, You would break through with the Gospel of Christ. Draw those folks to You. Father, as well, we pray for our own hearts that often so tend to be so hard. We ask this morning that You would soften them as we open Your Word, that You would instruct us from it. And Lord, let us not just learn facts, let us not just learn information, but Father, may it go deep. May the roots of it reach deep into the, into the recesses of our soul where we need to be changed and transformed and remade to be like Jesus. So, Father, use Your Word to accomplish Your purpose in us and in Your church. For the glory of Christ we ask. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. This series we are looking in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Ephesians, looking specifically at our relations, our relationships with one another. We noted last week that sin is a disruptive force. It always divides and separates and splinters. It separated man from God. It divides a man within and against himself. It divides man from man. It divides within our families, within our marriages, and even in the church. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the great unifier. It is reconciling and uniting us with God and, and also us with one another. In John chapter 13, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus is gathered with His disciples in the upper room. And there in John chapter 13, Jesus said to His disciples, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Then he goes on and he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples in that you have love one for another. 
Jesus intended that the mark that would set us apart as His followers would be our love for one another. That same night later on in that conversation, it continues chapter 16, chapter 17, Jesus prays there for His disciples. And as He prays, He prays and He says, Father, may they be one. May they become perfectly one so that the world will know that You have sent Me and that You love them even as You have loved Me. Jesus' prayer and Jesus' desire is that You and I live in unity. He calls us to unity. Unfortunately, that's not often the picture and the image that that we project of Christianity to the world around. Many of you may know that in Jerusalem there is a church, a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Sepulchre, a grave. The church is supposedly built on the site of the crucifixion and also of the, the burial, the tomb of Christ. Now, most evangelical scholars think they've got it in the wrong spot, so that's why I say supposedly, and nobody really knows, but there it is. It's this great place, and what you may not know is that that church, it's an ancient facility, and it's in the custody of six different Christian branches or denominations. It is in the custody and the care of the Greek Orthodox Church, the Armenian Apostolic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, and the Syriac Orthodox Church. But over the centuries, their relationship has been anything but cooperative and peaceful Instead of serving as partners in caring for this church, they are rivals, each of them vying to protect their turf, which sometimes comes to physical blows when one group feels that the other has encroached upon, this, upon their space, like in this fight in 2008 when the police came and broke it up. Another fight back in 2002 sent 12 of the holy men to the hospital. Because of the contrariness of these groups, it is almost impossible to get any kind of agreement to do repair work, and so the deteriorating building has been called by some engineers a danger to human life. Just to let you know how bad their lack of cooperation is, up on the ledge there, there sits a ladder. It has sat there since the early 1800s. You see, nobody can agree on who put it there, why it's there, who should move it, or if it should be moved at all. So there it sits. Just a ridiculous example of the whole ridiculous situation. And if that isn't embarrassing enough for Christianity, here's one more tidbit. Since the Christian factions have been so unable to peacefully coexist, and it goes so far back, back in 1192, okay, almost a thousand years ago, the Sultan Saladin appointed two Muslim families to serve as moderators and gatekeepers to the church. 
And to this day, it is the Muslim descendants of those Muslim families who open and close the church every day, every morning and night, and work to keep the peace between the Christian groups. That is humorous and heartbreaking all at the same time. Is that the image of Christ we want to project to the world? We don't want to be like that. And so we come here to our text in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're looking at what God desires for us as His, His people. We've already said that God desires for us to live in unity. We looked last week in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, and what we discovered there are seven attitudes that are essential if you and I are going to live together and serve together in unity. Seven attitudes. There's, there's humility and gentleness, patience, forbearance, bearing with one another, love, vigilance, being Diligent to maintain the unity. And lastly, it's peaceable. But the question I would want to raise this morning is, what is it that unites us? We're called to unity, but on what basis? The basis of our unity is not uniformity. For Christians could hardly be a more diverse group of folks. Christians, there are tall Christians and short Christians and skinny Christians and fat Christians and there's rich Christians and poor Christians. There are ones who are powerful and ones who are weak and ones who are beautiful and ones, well, not so beautiful. And there's ones who are popular and there are outcasts. There are all kinds of races of Christians, all kinds of nationalities, all kinds of languages. There are mourning people and God's people. And uh, <laughs> I mean the rest of us. You see, it's not uniformity that binds us together. We're different. It's also not unanimous. We don't all agree. <laughs> Whatever that word is. We certainly don't agree on everything. Significantly, Unity among believers is not something that we have to create. It's not something we have to gin up. It's not something we have to make happen. If you go back to the last verse of last week's thing, verse 3, it says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity. You see, we don't create it. We are maintaining, we are keeping the unity that already exists because we have not united ourselves God has made us one. God has united us. And in our passage today, we are going to discover that there are seven realities that unite us. Despite all the differences that there are among us as believers, there are seven things which unite us and they are huge, they're big. And as you and I grasp the realities of these truths and we embrace them, they will revolutionize our thinking and I think they will help us to have and to build the, the attitudes that we were called to build in verses 1 through 3, which is living up to our calling to be one. Let me read our verses for this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven bonds of unity. They're easy to pick out because they're all listed there as one. There is one body is the first one. One body. There are not multiple bodies. There is not the Baptist body of Christ and the Presbyterian body of Christ and the Pentecostal body of Christ and the fifth, fourth divisionist of whatever is body, you know, body of Christ. We're, we're all one. There's not the American body of Christ and the, the Mongolian body of Christ and the Argentinian body of Christ. We're, we are all one. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the Apostles' Creed. Now, that Catholic, it doesn't mean the denomination Catholic, as is the Roman Catholic Church. It means Catholic meaning universal. We believe in one universal body of Christ that is made up of every true believer in Jesus Christ, whether you are in America or whether you are in Guatemala or whether you are in the Philippines, wherever you are, whatever your nationality, whatever your language, whatever your race, Wherever you are, whatever time you belong to, whether you were in the first century or the 20th century or the 21st century or whatever one this happens to be, I guess it's the 21st. I can't believe I've lived through two centuries now. (laughs) We are all one body in Christ. The second thing that I want to note about this one body is not only that is it one, not multiple bodies, but that what that means is that as those who make up the body of Christ, we are inextricably connected. The point is driven home in this text in several different ways that we are this one body and we are connected. It, it says that God has made us both one. He uses a lot of different metaphors as we go through different word pictures. He says that God has made us both one. He goes on in chapter 2 and verse 15 that God has created one new man. He goes on in the next verse, verse 16, and says that He has reconciled us to God in one body. He goes on that couple verses down, verse 19, where God says that we are fellow citizens in God's kingdom. We are, we are also in that same verse, we are members of God's household. He goes on in a couple of verses later in verse 21 of chapter 2 and says that we are being joined together as a building. In that same verse, he says that we are also growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We also, he says, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God and that we are also fellow heirs. All these different pictures trying to get the same point across. We are connected. We are one body that is inextricably connected. And that not only means that we are united and cannot be separated, it also means that we are dependent upon each other. Every part of the body is essential. Every part of the body is important. When we miss a part, the body hurts. The body lacks. 
We understand that in our human bodies. If we lose a few fingers, if we lose a hand, if we lose an arm, if we lose a leg, we call that being disabled. We call that being handicapped because we don't have all the parts and we miss that. So it is in the body of Christ when you're not involved, when you're not connected, the body suffers there are some folks who think I can be a Christian, but I don't really need to be, be in the church. Well, yes, you do, because Jesus says the church is important. Jesus says the church is a body and you're needed in the church. You're needed in the church universal. You're needed in the church local. We're connected. But not only does, it, does, the, does that imply that we're, every part of the body is essential, it also implies this, that well, hear this. If my right hand gets frustrated with my left toe, my right hand does not pick up a hammer and smash my left toe. If it did that, I would learn a lesson very quickly. Maybe you've tried that. If not, you learn the lesson this way. You just went and stubbed your toe somewhere. Your toe got smashed when a rock fell on it or whatever. And you notice something immediately when that happens. You notice that your toe doesn't just sit there and hurt and the rest of your body go, well, whatever. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Your toe gets smashed and your whole body gets involved. <laughs> your mouth gets involved. Your, the rest of your body convulses. Your hands try to figure out, what can we do to help? You see, we're connected. And the reason my hand doesn't smash the toe is because it learned the lesson a long time ago. The hand hurts when the toe hurts. Everything hurts when the toe hurts. Everything is involved. You see, where that comes to play is within the church. Why is it that in the church sometimes the church smashes itself with a hammer? One member goes after another. One person goes after another. Brothers and sisters, do you not realize it is foolish and it is self-destructive because your brother and sister in Christ is part of the one body that you are a part of and we are connected inextricably and what happens to one affects the other. Learn that lesson. Secondly, we are not only one body, we are one spirit. We have one spirit. The, the Scripture says that every one of us, we have received the same spirit back in chapter 1. One Spirit has been given to each of us as a believer in Jesus Christ. The same Spirit who is a seal of our salvation and a guarantee of the inheritance that we have in Christ. As believers, you and I have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. Paul writes that to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1.14. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, do you not know that you're that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Paul wrote here to the Ephesians just in, the chap in chapter 2, and he says that you are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. What an incomprehensible truth and almost unbelievable the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, the Holy Spirit lives in you individually. You are a temple of God in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. 
Paul writes here to the Ephesians and he says, you together are being built up and growing to become a temple. It says in the verse before this and in this verse, verse 22, you are being built into a dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. Well, which one is true? Does God live in you individually? Does the Spirit live in you individually? Or does God live in us corporately as a temple? The answer is both. The Holy Spirit lives in you individually and you individually are a temple in which God's Spirit dwells. But together God is doing something unique, something extraordinary as He, as he has put us together into one body and together we serve as a temple in whom the Spirit of God dwells, the Spirit of Christ. And, and not only is God doing that now, but He is also doing something unique and amazing that won't be complete and won't be finished until we get to heaven. We are being built. We are growing. We aren't there yet. We're not at all that God intends for us to be. And as Paul, as not Paul, but as the writer to the Hebrews wrote, as he wrote at the end of chapter 11, He says, as he talks of the saints of old, that they weren't complete yet. God had something greater so that they wouldn't be complete until we come along. And it's not done yet. It's not going to be complete until the last believer comes. And God builds this temple. Every one of us is a brick, as it were, in the wall, which is the artwork that's there on all the stuff. Because we're all being built into this. Every part unique, every part needed, every part essential, every part significant. God's Spirit is dwelling in us. There are huge implications to that. If we all, if we, you and I both have the Holy Spirit living within us, that is a unique and a marvelous bond that connects us. Much better than maybe we went to the same high school or the same college or we like the same sports team. All the things that we tend to connect with people about. How, what greater is there than this? That you have the Holy Spirit living in you. I have the Holy Spirit living in me. That's huge. That binds us together. And it has these implications. You see, for how is it that you and I should handle sacred things? I have a feeling that you would be appalled if I walked over here and I grabbed that American flag and I threw it on the ground and I stomped on it. Most of you would be appalled. Some of you would be downright angry. Some of you would want to come up here and have some words with me. See, many of us know folks who have given their lives serving under that flag for the honor of the flag and all that it represents. It is symbolic and and it is something that we treat with honor and respect because of all that that is symbolized there. In a very real sense of the word, you see, as Americans, we treat the American flag as a sacred thing, as a holy thing. Not holy as set apart unto God, but set apart. How much more do we treat as sacred the things of God? And if you are a dwelling place, a place in which the Holy Spirit of God lives, That makes you sacred and makes you holy. And oh my goodness, how that should change our view of one another and our treatment of one another. You see, you are worthy of respect and of honor if you are a person in whom the Holy Spirit of God lives. This verse calls us to treat each other accordingly. We are one 
body who has one spirit who also has, there is one hope to which we have been called. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have a marvelous hope. You go back to chapter 1 and what you find there is that we are called to a glorious inheritance. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we share the same destiny, glory. We are heaven bound. As a matter of fact, the Apostle says over in chapter 2, he says that we have, in verse 6, he says that we have already, matter of fact, you may not believe it, I better read it. So you actually see, I'm not making this up. He says, by grace you've been saved, verse 5, verse 6, and raised us up, God has raised us up with Him, that's with Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God raised us up with Jesus Christ and seated us. That is, in English, that's called the past tense. In Greek, it's called the, the past tense. It means He's already done it. Now look at the person next to you. Do, you. do they look like they're seated in heaven? No, they look like they're sitting on the pew. We have a glorious destiny and He says He's already seated us there. Look at the person again next to you. Do they look glorious? Don't look too close. <laughs> I can tell you, I'm looking at you. I, I don't see anybody glorious out there. Some of you look better than others. But none of you are glorious. You're looking at me going, ain't nothing glorious up there. What does God mean when He says He's already done it? He's already seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ. Well, it's an exciting thing because what it's saying is this. That is our destiny and when God says, I'm going to do something, it's as good as done. You can say it's already done because God always does what He says He's going to do. So while you're not physically in the heavenly realms, God has done it. And we're going to be there. It's a certain thing. What that saying is, is that person next to you may not look glorious, but they are. Because God has, is going to raise them and seat them in the heavenly realms with Christ, the Bible says we are going to rule and reign with Him forever and ever. Not because you deserve it, because you don't, and I deserve it less. But because God is gracious. And He's going to give us what we do not deserve. But it's so sure that it's already done in a very real sense. It's a done deal. And what that means is that person next to you has a glorious destiny. They are going to rule and reign with Christ. How dare you treat them with dishonor? Treat them with the honor they deserve as one who will rule and reign with Christ. Therefore, I cannot dismiss you as unimportant. I cannot ignore you as somebody who is unworthy of my attention. I cannot slander you or gossip about you because you have been seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. Husbands, go home and treat your wives as someone who's seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Wives, go home and treat your husbands as someone treated who will be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That person across the church from you that maybe you just have difficulty with, realize they're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It'll change your perspective.
You see, this isn't, these aren't just theological truths that we just get and we just go, oh, that's kind of interesting, stick it up on the shelf with all those theological things. Well, we are one body, we have one spirit, we're called to one hope. No, this is life-changing stuff when we grasp it. It's relationship-changing stuff. Fourthly, one Lord. One Lord. There is only one Lord, Jesus Christ. People love to shape Jesus into our own image, so we make Jesus, you know, the black Jesus. We make Jesus the easygoing, hip Jesus. We make Jesus the comfortable, middle-class American Jesus. You know, we shape Him and we have my Jesus. The reality is there is only one Jesus Christ. And He is not your Jesus or my Jesus. He is Lord Jesus Christ. And He is not ours. We are His. We get to claim Him because He claimed us, but we don't own Him. He does own us. The Scripture says, You are not your own. Paul wrote the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, For you were bought with a price, the price of the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Jesus owns you and me. He loved you so much that He died for you. And if Jesus loved you that much, you are incredibly valuable. Again, so many implications to this. I thought of three. I just wanted to share, first of all, this. If Jesus is your Lord, you are His property. And if I disrespect you, if I treat you poorly, then I disrespect Him because you're His. Just like you go out and you make fun of my car, and there's a sense in which you make fun of me because my car is mine. It's kind of a reflection of me. And, and that is with our stuff. We take it personally when people, you know, make fun of our stuff. Do we not think Jesus takes it personally when we make fun or disrespect or dishonor those that belong to Him? Second, I think, how can I possibly devalue or think unimportant someone whom was so valuable to God that He sent His one and only Son? God became man to die for you, to purchase you with His own blood. You are infinitely valuable to God, so you should be infinitely valuable to me. Lastly, if Jesus is my Lord then He is boss of my life. He's in charge. And Jesus said, we, I look back in John chapter 13 where Jesus said a new command I give to you, love one another even as I have loved you. You are to love one another. That wasn't a suggestion. It didn't have on their little caveats, little out if you feel like it. If they're nice to you, if they love you back, then you love them. He didn't say that. He says, Love one another like I have loved you. And by this all men will know you're my disciples, by the way you love one another. Wow. It's a command, not a suggestion. Unity, living in unity, is not optional for believers in Jesus Christ. It's expected. Fifthly, not only is there one Lord, but there is one faith. There's only one way for us to get to heaven. Jesus said it, John chapter 14, you know this verse, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father 
except through me. Acts chapter 4, the Apostle Peter is speaking to a crowd and he says, For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, There is one God, one mediator, there's only one, one go-between between God and man, only one person who can bridge that gap. It is the man Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer is asking Paul and Silas, he says, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. There's only one way to get to heaven. It's believing in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I know most of you know this, but I have to say it as often as I can, whenever I can in case there is one person who's never heard or one person who's heard it many times but never acted upon it. There is no way to heaven. There is no way into this hope. There is no way into the body of Christ. No way to partake of the Spirit of God. No way to have a hope, assurance of heaven except by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. There is only one faith. It's in Jesus Christ. Only one faith that saves. There's one Lord, there's one faith, and then there is one baptism. There's some question if you look at some scholars and some theologians and you look at this and some will say that the baptism here is water baptism. Others will say it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Which one is it? That's a great question. May I say that it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 very clearly says that we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, into the body of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit of God who baptizes every one of us into this body of Christ. That is, re- that is true and it certainly is what unites us. And it may be what this verse refers to here. But I think that as you go back and you look at number one and number two, that that's, that's covered in number one and two. We are in one body and we have one spirit. So personally, I don't think it's referring to Baptism by the Spirit, I think it is referring to water baptism. And I think it fits more in the context as well because if you look at number four there, there is one Lord. How do you and I get into the body of Christ? Well, we believe in the one Lord. We, it's when we come to realize that Jesus Christ is the, the Son of God. He is God who became man, who came to die for our sin, to pay the penalty of our sin. So that we can be saved, we recognize who He is, and then we place our faith in Him, one faith. We place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We receive Him, believe on Him, and then we are saved. And then the next step as we go through what Scripture does, the next thing is we're baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is not required to save you. It's not a work that we must do to get saved. But baptism is something we do because, you see, Our salvation is something that cannot be seen. Our faith we cannot see. Baptism is a physical outworking, a physical expression, a physical action that demonstrates what's happened already on the inside. We are already saved. We are already put into the body of Christ because we place our faith in Jesus, but we respond with the physical action of being baptized. And that's why Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. It's the physical outworking, the physical expression of our faith. It's the logical thing. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What Paul is saying is that our baptism, we all share a common baptism. We were baptized as Christians. We were baptized into Christ. 
First Corinthians chapter one, the church is divided because folks are following Paul and folks are following Apollos and folks are following you know, this guy and that guy. And Paul said, whoa, were you baptized into Paul? No. It's a rhetorical question. Who are you baptized into? Jesus. Right. There's only one baptism. We are baptized into Christ. Lastly, there is one God. The great cry of the Old Testament, the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. There is only one God, period. There are no other gods. And that God is, he goes on, he is the father of all, the creator of everything. He is over all. He is sovereign over everything, in control of everything. He is through all. He's the one who sustains and, and keeps everything going. And he is in all. He's the one who indwells us. Why is our unity so important? Just notice very quickly something. Numbers 1, 2, and 3 there from verse 4. All of those are about the Spirit. Numbers 4, 5, and 6 are all in verse 5, and they're all about Jesus. This last one, number 7, in verse 6 is the Father. What you have in these verses is all three persons of the Godhood, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is three persons in one unity. The One who made us, the One who redeemed us, the One who indwells us. Three persons, one God. God calls us to unity. He calls us to live in oneness so that our relationship to one another, our existence as a unified body of Christ, living in unity despite all of our diversity, that we then be a reflection of the oneness of the Godhead. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what God desires for you and me. Our unity then is based and it's rooted on these seven realities. Seven realities that have real implications and, and they're tangible things we need to understand and, and grasp a hold of, embrace them. And they our unity then is dependent upon us not only grasping these, but putting into practice those attitudes we saw last week, which really arise out of these foundational unities. But ultimately, as we also noted last week, our unity, while it is there already, God has united us. And while we need to have those attitudes, make those a part of how we think, ultimately that unity comes about from the power of God, the transforming power of God, changing us from the inside out. It's a supernatural act that needs to happen in us. When you and I yield ourselves to Him, God will do it. A few years ago, and I want to close with this, I was down in the Philippines, in the southern Philippines, and we were, I was teaching the book of Ephesians with some of our frontline missionaries working among the 13 unreached people groups in the southern Philippines. As I was there with this group of folks, and there were a bunch of us, and, and uh, we were in chapter 1, we read in chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, and he says, I pray that you may know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Some of the folks said, 
Keith, we want to know. They were talking about it with each other. I see him going, we want to know. What does this power look like? What should we be expecting if we come to know this surpassing great power of God in our lives? What would we expect to see? Is it, you know, great miracles? Is it, you know, lightning flashing? Is it, you know, you know, uh, striking people dead? You know, healing people? What is it? Where is this huge, surpassing great power? I said, wait a bit. Let's get over to chapter 3. We got there. I said, let me show you the power of God. I said, you see, these folks are working among the sub- these 13 unreached people groups. It's tribal peoples, they're not, they don't all live in huts, I'm just saying, but the people know the tribes they belong to and different language groups, different people groups. But these tribes, they live, most of them, in fairly close proximity to one another or to other tribes. And there is history of prejudice and violence against one another. Every one of these folks that I know there has a family member or more who have been killed in feuds and in tribal violence. These folks drive cars and use computers. It's not like they're, you know, that. but there's, it's like gang stuff. Matter of fact, the, the prejudice is so strong. And I'll, I'll tell you, I learned this little poem and wrote it down. It explains just how some of these folks view each other. They say, the Taosug looked down on the Yakan. The Yakan looked down on the Samabangini. The Samabangini looked down on the Southern Sama. The Southern Sama looked down on the Bajau. And the Bajau looked down on the fish. It says, a pecking order. If you're a Bajau, you're the lowest of the low. Why that's important is you see I'm there with this group of folks and I said, look, there's a Yakan. You're Sama Bangini. You're Southern Sama. You're Sama Pangutaran. You are Kalibugan. You were a form, you were, you used to be a rebel, a guerrilla fighter. You used to be a soldier in the Philippine army. See, you guys are here and you love each other. You have brothers and sisters. There is no high, there is no low. You are all servants of one another. You're working together. I said, there is the power of God demonstrated. You read chapter 3 and that's exactly what Paul says between Jew and, and Greek. The power of God is in evidence that He's taken these two, these two people who should not be together. These people who everybody would say could never be brought together. They are so disparate. They can never get along. See, the real power of God shows up when the people of God are united into one body by one spirit. What a tragedy that it doesn't show up that way most of the time, but it ought to. I'm here to tell you that it can happen. When we embrace these realities of our unity, when we embrace the attitudes that God calls us to have, and we lean upon the Spirit of Christ, of God to change us and remake us, He will do it in us. And when He does, it will be a supernatural thing that will get the attention of other folks when they look and say, wow, you guys really love each other. Yeah, because Jesus said, this is how people are going to know that we're His disciples, by the way we love one another. The Gospel of Jesus Christ can bring 
the most disparate folks together regardless of race, regardless of social status, regardless of backgrounds. He can reconcile the supposed irreconcilable. He can do it in the church. He can even do it in our homes. Do you believe that? God says it's true. We're going to learn more as we keep going through the book. God starts to flesh it out and He gets real practical. Let's pray. Father, You've desired so much that Your people be as one. We confess and Lord, we are so sorry that we so often fail. Sometimes we get into schisms, we get into factions. Lord, sometimes we cause trouble, sometimes we receive it. Sometimes we get hurt, sometimes we hurt others. Lord, it should not be so among Your people. You have called us to unity. You have called us to live as one. Jesus prayed that we might be one. Even as You are one, the reflection of the unity in the Trinity, that's what You desire. Lord, would You make it so? Make it so in this church. Lord, convict us if there are things that need to change in our lives. Encourage us if we've gotten discouraged. Strengthen us where we are weak. Build our marriages, build our homes, build this church in the love of Jesus Christ. We ask it for our good, for the the testimony of the gospel in the world around us, in our community. And Lord, we ask it for the glory of Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.